this is a a new era for the unknown studio because we are uh, we're in a new place, and um, we don't know where to park basically because at my house where we used to record there is free parking, and now we're downtown where parking is not known for its freeness. So uh, we're hoping that we're not towed. It is possible that we might be. This might be the last episode because we might be in traffic prison. Traffic prison, you heard me correctly. It is where you go when you break the traffic law and then don't have the money to pay for your fine. It's basically where I'm going with that. So um, Adam has gone to get our guest, who's lost, much like I was, because, again, new era. We're um, in a new place. Very little idea how to get here. We're going to be looking for a lot of guests over the next season. But eventually, that will change. We will be so well-known that uh, people will just instinctively know where to go. They will follow the stench, and they will find the Unknown Studio. The stench of greatness? Um, actually, it smells of varnish right now, because they clearly have recently done the floor. So um, <laughs> that is the stench. You will, you will follow the smell of a finely polished wooden floor, and that will take you to where you need to go to be on our show. That's right. Hey, Scott. Yes, Adam. Who would you define as Black Irish from Star Trek? From Star Trek? Yeah. Who's Black Irish? Black Irish? Yeah. Data. Really? Nobody really liked him. Coming to you almost live from our new fancy downtown gigs in the Mercer building, this is The Unknown Studio. I'm Scott. I'm Adam. And we are your loopy hosts. We are loopy because not only is the film Looper coming out, which we don't care about, but if you do, listen to J&J, the J&J Entertainment Podcast. The other thing we're loopy about is that we finally have Minister Faust in our presence. The sinister minister, not Black Irish. Or maybe... No. 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 On mom's side, Welsh, but uh, but that is an, and dad's side is Kenyan. So two two sides who took a pounding from Anglo Saxons. <laughs> and uh, so it's ironic that I took an English degree. You, you think I should have a seething boiling in my blood against uh, all things Anglo Saxon. Does that make you a glutton for punishment? I guess it does. I guess. I guess, I guess if I were to look back over my life and uh, assess the various choices and the repercussions of those choices, I'd say glutton for punishment would probably be a kind way of describing it. Okay. There you go. Yeah. With the one exception being, of course, my, my marriage to my beautiful wife and my, my having sired two lovely daughters. Okay. There you go. So not everything has been torturous. No, that's right. That's fair to say. Okay. You are a novelist. Correct. You are a noted uh, presence in the city, I would say. (laughs) <laughs> like on a police blotter. <laughs> well, no. I was, I was going to say you, you're uh, known for uh, your political activism. Sure. You're known for um, having a radio presence. Yes. You are known for uh, running for office. Yes. And making the best bean pies in all of Canada. Which I was going to say for last, because that is what you are best known for, I would say. I would actually like to know a little bit more about this because I was I was reading I was reading your bio on your website, 
and I saw this this bean pie thing, mm-hmm. and I want to know how that all came about. We'll get to the other stuff. Sure. But I'm interested in deserts of Kush. Yes, desserts. D- d- why did I say that? I don't know. I, I'm baffled by that. But, you know, strangely enough, uh, this summer I was working uh, at the Edmonton Folk Fest, and I was partnered with a restaurant, and we were selling, among other things, desserts. And there was one pie called Kush Dessert Pie. And several people said, what's this Kush Desert Pie? And I thought, my gosh. we, we Good, I'm not we the only ordered, one. <laughs> we ordered our marquee. We paid good money for it. And that person misspelled it because, as you know, one of the prerequisites for getting a job making signs is to be a poor speller. Yes. And so, but it's weird. Just people just, I don't know what it is. Because of my upbringing, I get really nervous about people's names. And I'll just freeze on people's names because I don't want to embarrass myself. And therefore, I will get their names wrong. And now... Desert? Desert? It appears I've discovered this is other people's kryptonite. I, I, I don't know why it happens. So you you were at the Folk Fest selling these pies? Among other things, yes. Among other things. Yes. Kush may be uh, an indication. I don't know. Yes. Here is a great opportunity to understand the intersection of different cultures. Yes. So my understanding is that to young Euro-Canadians, Kush is a drug reference. It's a kind of marijuana. Mm-hmm. Uh, to Africans in North America, Kush is what it is. That is to say, it is the Horn of Africa. So this is everywhere from okay. Egypt to uh, Somalia, uh, well, uh, Somaliland, Djibouti, Somalia. It encompasses Ethiopia. So it is the home of classical African civilization and the Nilotic uh, civilizations. So. I was uh, baffled when I discovered that uh, the, the, the young white folk with their transistor radios and their skull caps and all that kind of thing were also making drug references to, uh, to the site of our classical civilizations. And then I, I, so at first I was slightly disappointed, and then I realized, well, you know, maybe I'll sell some more books, since one of my novels is called The Alchemist of Kush. So, back is, to pies. Is it fair to say, before we go to pies, yes. that Kush is racist? Oh, no. You don't no, think? no, I wouldn't say no because the people who use that term, I, I think they had no clue what its origin was. I'm assuming that they meant it from the Hindu Kush, uh, which is an old colonial expression for uh, parts of, of India, where I'm guessing. I mean, this would be my guess. I'm taking a guess here. Uh, that would probably include even parts of Afghanistan, where you have some of the world's richest supply of uh, poppy oh. growth. Therefore, opium and heroin. So I'm assuming Kush sounded like it was somewhere in that area, and that's where this drug reference came from, but not everything is ill-intended. I mean, it irritates me that the cultures of pan sorry, the colors of pan-Africanism, yellow, black, gold, and red, have been expropriated by the marijuana crowd uh, because of the Jamaican flag and because of uh, Rastafarians. But they don't mean any harm, and mostly they're too slow-moving to cause any, so (laughs) I'm not going to worry about it too much. That's fair. Back to the uh, the the, bean the, pie. the deserts. Yes, as exactly. they say. That's right. So the bean pie. So people who visit the United States are more likely to understand the, the culture of the bean pie. But anybody listening who has watched the movie Boys in the Hood um, by director John Singleton will recall a very brief moment in which um, the title, the main character, is going to his new home in South Central Los Angeles, and a member of the Nation of Islam on the street with his bow tie and his crisp uh, suit says, bean pie, my brother? And he's selling bean pies on the corner in these beautiful, uh, tight, crisp boxes. And for those of you who don't know, a bean pie is not a savory Mexican 
dinner. It is a pumpkin pie style dessert. Hmm. And to Westerners who think beans, well, that's like pork and beans, and it's all salty and and kind of gross in the context of dessert. I have to think of Chinese desserts, which are of course made with beans, and they're sweet and delicious and, and magnificent. That's where I went. Yes, but you know you shouldn't be blamed for that because until you know, you don't know. How could you know? The bean pie. If you imagine that pumpkin pie is the girl next door, bean pie is Halle Berry. Bean pie has got a better texture. It's more sweet. It's just more exotic. It's more. It's more aromatic. It's magnificent. And uh, whereas you can buy them all over the United States, not just. I mean, the, the Nation of Islam invented them as a substitute for sweet potato pie, which is low in protein and. Beans are high in protein. This is from the navy bean. Uh, it's so permeated American African culture that you find them all over the place. Uh, in Canada, they're relatively unknown. Yeah. So, you know, I can safely say that I'm the owner of Canada's finest bean pie uh, bakery because there's nobody to compete with. There's <laughs> a couple guys in Toronto, and that's it. They may take umbrage with that statement. They might. And then there will be a bean pie off. It could. It's possible. I feel like there are worse things that could happen. I think that that's amongst the best things that could happen. It's actually part of our long-range marketing plan. We have a, <laughs> we have a bean pie axis. There's two guys in <laughs> The uh, axis Toronto. of bean that's pies. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. so how did they do at Folk Fest, just out of curiosity? Oh, I mean, you know, people who bought bean pies loved them. I was also selling our delicious goddess of uh, lemons lemonade, which uh, was ginger lemonade. It went very well. I've been... People are urging me to go into actually bottling this lemonade, and you know I had a secret formula and all that. And people, uh, you know, people were paying a no lie five dollars a glass for this lemonade, and we sold lots and lots and lots. So that's wow. a pretty good indicator. You are a Renaissance man. Well, I think that the fact that the Renaissance was largely founded on pie and lemonade sales, <laughs> I'd, I'd have to agree with that. I was going to say that he's bringing back childhood lemonade stands, mm -hmm, but exactly. for adults. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And making a killing, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. You know, I just want to point out for people listening that every time you laugh, you turn away from the microphone. And so the podcast makes it sound like I'm just some tedious blowhard <laughs> making idiotic remarks. But you're actually laughing. If you just laugh, then at least my jokes wouldn't seem so sad and pathetic. I, I, will, I will say, for the record... We have been politely turning away to laugh at basically everything that you have said so well, far. Okay. So, right. the, so the podcast listening audience... Our tens of listeners know we are indeed screaming with laughter in the background. I, I thought we were up to 50s of listeners, but that, that's neither here nor there. And I just yeah. want to add in one, one amendment. So you were laughing with everything that I said. Oh, yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. No, you're, you're, you're at. That was the... That it was just the... makes for bad audio when I'm laughing over our guests. Yeah, it's, it's, it's inviting. It's encouraging. You both have such, such warm, you know, sonorous voices and, and such masculine <laughs> laugh, laughter. Now, now he's making fun of us. <laughs> no, I'm, this is... A, it's, 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 one, it's a wonderful <laughs> presence. You have wonderful radio presence. Share, the, you share that laughter. Do not hide it under an auditory barrel. Okay. I feel like we've established the... The terms of engagement Excellent. here. Excellent. Yeah. Our terms of engagement. I like that. Now, the last time that, uh, that I saw you... The last time I was on the podcast. With a, the never time. Yep. The, it, was for a, it was a fundraiser for a pure spec, and you were, at the time, you were reading at uh, the White Mud Crossing Public Library. I thought the last time was at pure spec 
Well, yes, we actually talked about Star Trek, and we're going to do more of that. And you were on a panel that I, that That's I hosted. Right. We were so both on do, a panel. Yeah, yeah. So you remember that you were there, right? I do. Barely. Apparently, Adam I feel does feel a little not. sad, evidently. No, like no. It was so boring to you no, that no, you don't no. even remember that you were on the panel that I, I created and hosted. This was a fabulous experience, but I'm, now I'm thinking more in the context of your of, I'll call you, of your writing. Yeah. Uh, when you had just written, or just, I don't know if it was just, but you were promoting The Alchemist of Kush. That's right. It was still a few months away from publication. Yeah. date, as insiders say. Now, and, and browsing your website, I know you've got a new novel that, That's that right. is out, and we'll talk yes. about that. As well. One of the things that really caught my eye was the, the theatrical trailers that right. you use to promote your novels. Yeah, cinematic trailers yes. is the insidey type talk. Okay. Yeah, cinematic. Uh, well, you know... Book trailers, you know, a few years ago, to my knowledge, didn't exist. And then with the explosion of independent publishing made possible through digital uh, publishing and distribution, um, and all these wonderful online tools, including many, a lot of free software, people began to realize that, hey, they could make trailers. And so it led to a magnificent, like, a heretofore unparalleled explosion of absolute shit. Yeah. <laughs> Most of the trailers that existed right up until 2000. Nine, ten were just horrible. Yeah. But I guess people kind of figured that part out. And then by about mid-2010, things started to turn around. And by now you're seeing a lot of pretty good book trailers. Before the problem was people tried to shoot scenes from their books. And what they didn't understand was that the reason that a movie trailer can be so magnificent, so sense-shattering, you know, to sound like Stan Lee, is because the trailer budget is the same as the budget for the movie. Yeah. A $100 million movie, they got all the footage they want to make 90 seconds of pure awesomeness. If you don't have $100 million, but you've got $5,000, and you've got to like try to make 12 scenes or something, uh, like, and plus, you know, people get excited mostly because they see actors they recognize, so they know what to expect, you know. And then they see some explosions or whatever else. And that was the sound of a Macintosh booting up. No, that it, was that was your smile. That was the, my, the insights uh, of my comment. You're just thinking, wow, that's yes. so wise what this <laughs> fellow was saying. So, so anyway, so so book trailers. So I created a couple of different book trailers, and you know, it's, if for folks who want to do this, you can get loads of great stock footage uh, inexpensively. Um, if, if you are an artistic type, there's a good chance you have musician friends who mm -hmm. will, you know give you or lend you their music, and hopefully, you know a little bit about at least typesetting. You don't have to be a, you don't have to be able to draw, but you can make letters, you know, using some digital uh, software. You can, that's the only type of software there is, but you can use those to make the fonts look swell. You do all that, and you can make some nice trailers. And so I, I've loved doing it. In fact, uh, and you're the, doing them all yourself. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Oh no. Now the new one for the Alchemist for the Warren Mir, uh, Volume One Ascension. That one was done by a guy in uh, the Czech Republic. Uh, How did you find this guy? Um, well, for folks who want to do this, uh, one of the Google key ter keyword phrases you you want to be searching is AE template is in Adobe uh, effects. Uh, no, it's After Effects. After. Adobe After Effects. And so template basically if you watch television and you see commercials and they have glittering, you know, titles and you know neat glittery effects whatnot, that's most of that is done in Adobe After Effects. So Templates simply, uh, you know, you'll go online and what you'll find is you'll find some 
basically it's like a, a commercial for something that doesn't exist and then you buy the template hopefully from a person who will simply customize it to you meaning that they'll put in the name of your book they'll put in your photos etc and you'll get something that looks like it could you know you just saw it on ABC television and it'll look dynamite so this one now what you give up is exclusivity but you know really if you're a writer uh, you don't have to worry like you're a big Difficulty is getting people to find your work. The likelihood that they found another person using the exact same template is virtually zero. Yeah. And you, you only, the only fear you might have is that you're going to, uh, somebody's going to post a link on your YouTube channel and say, hey, look, same trailer at dildos.com. <laughs> you know, then that's, that would be terrible. Or it could be really good press. <laughs> well, that, that is true. You, and, you know, the dildonic population might, in fact, uh, really come to love your book. I was looking for dildos, and then I came across this book, and it was really good. Exactly. Yeah. I, yeah. I feel like that could That's a happen. blurb right there. <laughs> yeah. That is the kind of thing I would look for on the yeah. back of a book. Better than dildos. That's, <laughs> yeah. that's your next cinematic yeah. trailer. Oh, yeah. yeah. So tell us a little bit about the new novel. It's volume one. It's a trilogy. Right. Correct. And and it's... what? Tell us what it's about. Okay, War and Mirror... Um, so just for folks to know, the, the, the title Mir is in the Mir space station. Yep. And for folks who know a little bit of Russian, Mir means peace. So that means that the book is, technically speaking, war and peace. So you are now plagiarizing a famous novelist. Only the title. That's fair. And, you know, in fairness, you can't copyright titles. And he's dead, so screw him. Yeah, and, and, <laughs> and even if the book is copyrighted, that's long since exactly. passed. Yeah, and I think that one's in the public domain anyway. I think you're right. So we, can so do we could own... see War and Peace and Zombies right away. Ooh, that's nice. Yes. That's clearly what's going to happen if it's in the public domain. Obviously. Yeah. Yep. yeah. yeah. And that's where, that's where it all should end up. All literature should end up as zombie books. <laughs> yes. Uh, I would read them. I would definitely read them. Well, and you know, a lot of kids, kids in school, the kids, I mean, I was taught school for 10 years. You want kids to read. It's very difficult some for some kids to get them excited about reading. And I think that zombies would go a long way. And I mean, look, let's be honest. We're sitting around this table. We're all three. Uh, well, two of you are young men. I'm an older man. <laughs> Come on. I got many years on you, punks. <laughs> uh, and at any rate, um, and, uh, you know, I don't know about you, but Jane's. Jane Eyre, Jane Austen, maybe you guys love this stuff. Me, I didn't want to go near this stuff. Yeah. All right? I read plenty of Victorian literature during my English degree. Okay? It was very masculine. I'm not, I'm not ashamed of saying that. It was masculine. It had to do with killing and stabbing and, you know, philosophically beating people to death and all that kind of stuff. Okay? John Stuart Mill was a gangster, all right? <laughs> I don't care for the Janes. I'm not interested. I'm not going near that stuff. But you throw some zombie stuff in it, okay, yeah. I'll read the book. Now it's a whole different story. Uh, a different kettle of zombies, Ooh. if you will. Zombie kettles. I like what you did there. Chunky yeah. tea. <laughs> you know where we, where we were supposed to be talking about we're, stuff? Well, my yeah, new about book. Your book. It was yes. about your book. Yes, my new book. What well, was a bit of a segue? Uh, I guess we're roundabout. Yeah, so I don't think it's we, not a segue. We yeah. didn't. We we're, now we're back. Here we are, and we're back. Tell us about Warren Mir. Warren Mir. So Mir means peace. At any rate, um, so in 2001, I like many people was still seething with rage about the Phantom Menace, and the Phantom Menace. And I'm not a Lucas basher. I'm tired of all the Lucas bashing. I happen to think that uh, Attack uh, that uh, Attack of the Clones and Revenge of the Sith. If they, people hadn't been so burned by the, the first one, Phantom Menace, I think people would have reacted very differently to those other two movies. 
There's lots of great stuff in them. You can't tell me that third movie wasn't a piece of shit. Oh, I can. I can, sir. In fact, I will. I, I really it was not a piece of shit. Okay. And in fact, it had a lot of terrific stuff in it that, that Lucas never attempted in his other movies. Okay. Okay. And stuff that was successful. And especially Attack of the Clones. But that's we can get to that one later. We, and we will. And we will. But the point is that uh, I hated uh, The Phantom Menace and... I was just, I felt so totally betrayed by that movie. And what occurred to me as I, you know, sifted through, you know, I, I just labored over this. I ruminated upon it. I became more and more angry about it. And I thought, well, look, here's the basic story here. You've got a, a, a domestic population, if you want to say you could call it an indigenous population, uh, that is attempting independent development, and they are threatened by... Uh, an interstate alliance of uh, powerful corporations, evidently, the, the Trade Federation, um, that is uh, trying to destroy their national sovereignty. Uh, you've got uh, a monarchy that, if for its various reasons, is, is crumbling and is unresponsive, un incapable of meeting this, this challenge. You have another indigenous people on that same planet threatened with extinction. You have who, who are deemed to be, you know, blockheads, but in fact are highly sophisticated and uh, have great technology and advanced culture and all that. You've got um, child slavery. You've got um, a, a boy who is a child slave who is, who is destined to become basically uh, like Himmler. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and you've got um, a, 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 what I would say a corrupt, leaden bureaucracy of state murderers, the Jedi, who have lost their way and have no vision beyond we solve things by killing people. Let's go negotiate that, uh, you know, let's help them solve this trade. Just, just kill them. I yeah. mean, that's, in fact, the Jedi have no purpose except to murder. You know, I, and I, I agree. I, I, this is interesting because I don't think anyone has ever thought about or never, to me, articulated this sort of angle to it because everyone was so incest, yes. incensed yes. that George Lucas just fucked over their childhood. <laughs> I, I just want to go on record saying that if that had been the pitch for The Phantom Menace, I would be watching it nonstop every day. I may now... Because I'm totally sold on it right yeah. now. I may now watch yes. it again, but please continue. Well, and this is the thing. I thought about all these elements, and I thought, well, you know, this is what... This is a great story. The problem is all of the execution because Lucas went from making, you know, movies that were basically s perfect for young teens mm -hmm. and very good for adults to making a movie that was really for little kids. Yeah. Now, you know, you can see, you can see the beginning of that in Jedi, but still there's enough stuff in that final battle between Luke and Vader and the Emperor that that still really can work as an adult film. For folks who think that Empire Strikes Back is so freaking great, watch that romance as an adult. I mean, that's that's terrible. That's what you. That's how you write romance when you're 13 years old. Yeah. Okay. But it's got lots of other great stuff in it, so we forgive that. Sure. But here was this great plot, and I said, well, you know what? I want to write this. I want to write this as a revisionist book. Take these same elements. Show what you could do with them if you wanted to take your their, your own premises seriously. And so the Battle of Seattle had just happened, and I thought, okay, so I've got to involve this real-world event in my book. And I was all ready, and I was getting the plot done, and because I do extensive note-taking of plot building and world building for a science fiction book like this. And then September 11th, the attacks inside the United States, and suddenly so much of what I had in mind for a plot had to respond to this. Mm -hmm. And so as I'm writing this book, then, of course, 
there is the uh, the war that follows with the, an illegal occupation, and then there is, of course, that is used as justification for another illegal war and its occupation and this mass murder of so many people. And I had to encompass these things. I had to address these things. And then Battlestar Galactica came out and was doing really, was covering a lot of the same ground, that, and, you know, brilliantly. I mean, it was a brilliant series. Brilliant is what people say when they mean that they love something a lot. Yes. Okay. So, it, might, it might not mean actually brilliant. Yes. Yeah. Be because when you're talking about art, brilliant just means you like it. Because there is no objective measure for art. Because art is, by definition, it is about subjective experience. I'm just saying that to take a stab at the Academy that thinks that they have the right to say, no, this is brilliant and everything else is pop culture. It's so. interesting that they throw and science at the end of their, uh, of their title. The Academy. Oh, oh the, the, what? what are you talking about? The, the motion, motion picture, picture Academy oh. of art and science. Uh, yes, yes. Art sure and there sciences. is some science involved in motion pictures. Yes. In the but, art of making yes. motion pictures. And I would, I would say really it should be thought of as motion picture engineering because yeah, most of it fair. is really on the engineering level. That but is it, fair. But, the, you know, the science is it does, it makes, it kind of ups the game a little bit. Makes, mm. It classes up the joint. <laughs> you know? That's true. Yeah. So it's like, you know, it's like if you're dating a woman and, and you want her to think that you're pretty awesome. So, you know, you take out your business card and it says, Doctor of Lovemaking Sciences. Yeah. You know, like, hey, she's going to say, well, she's going to leave. But if she didn't leave, she'd say, wow, that is so keen. And so you're she'd a thank scientist. you for the golden statue and you'd play her off after 30 yeah. seconds. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll Ding! Leave, wow, leave that was a that 10 problem. points. That was pretty freaking awesome. <laughs> Very nice. Uh, so at any rate, so, um, so Warren Mir was... And, it, and the other thing was that in 2001 that the Mir space station was allowed to be destroyed. And I regarded this as, as truly one of the great failures of our modern civilization because Mir was one of the greatest accomplishments in the history of humanity. But it was Russian... So let's destroy it. <laughs> so it, it didn't get to live at the Smithsonian with the Endeavor? Do you, I can't recall. Do you, think that, do you think that was a, you know, I, I mean, I know the Cold War has been over for a long time, but do you think that was a factor? I, you know, I would say that in fairness, I mean, the Russian government had a lot of financial priorities, and, 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 and it, it is fair to say, you know, it, was, it wasn't doing well at that point. They, obviously, the ISS, the International Space Station, was uh, deemed to be, you know, the those governments deemed that to be necessary. They're going to pour their energy into that. I would just say that Mir should absolutely have been a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Uh, it, was, it was the greatest um, achievement in astronautics or cosmonautics that there'd ever been. Yeah. And we really should have seen this, like if somebody could, if American nationalists had the Mayflower, for instance, like, and somebody said, no, nah, let's just let it burn or sink into the ocean, people would say, no, that's inappropriate. It's 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 a significant component of our national imperialist history. It you know it, it it commemorates the dawn of our genocide of two continents worth of people. We we need this to prove our awesomeness. But Mir is not about initiating mass murder. Mir is uh, and ultimately is an example of cooperation among former enemies. Yeah, and that is a and you know that is. Extraordinary and worth preserving, and worth preserving, and you know, I, I, and and also for those of us raised in North America, you know, if we grew up loving, I mean, as I say, I'm older than you guys, so I grew up in the pre-shuttle era, 
I was reading about all the Soviet, the Soviet space program, the American space program, and all the American stuff, it looked all, you know, it was very, we saw more pictures of that. So that was kind of like the standard model. That's what spaceships are supposed to look like. And all the Soviet stuff was so weird, different colors, it was green, and all, it was kind of bulbous and insect-like, and you know, the, the thrusters of the big rockets looked so, so masculine. They were just big and weird shaped. And it was just, it was awesome. It was, it was a science fiction movie from this other world. Yeah. And, you know, the Lemoverse, you know, even though he wasn't Russian, but he was from the Eastern Bloc. And it was just amazing stuff, you know. So I wanted to incorporate those elements. I wanted Mir in there. I wanted to do this revisionist version of The Phantom Menace. And, um, and, so, and so it became more Mir. And it became massive, absolutely huge. It was, I'd, I'd written one mega book, still unpublished before, but this one was 700 single-spaced pages. That means 700 pages times 500 words a page. Wow. Okay, so it was absolutely huge. And there was no way my agent said, you know, basically, <laughs> and that was the end of that. And uh, I did another book. But, you know, I loved this story, and I thought, well, now as an independent publisher, an independent author, I really want this story to get out to people. And I recognize that because of the, the, the nature of my writing, this isn't the kind of book that is going to be on the New York Times bestseller list. But that doesn't mean, but the people who are going to want this kind of book are going to want this kind of book. Yeah. So let me, let me release this. And so let me release it in three parts because, uh, you know, a mega book goes down more easily when you're getting in chunks. Hmm. Okay. Um, so I want to go back to something you mentioned about, you talked about an agent. Yes. I glommed onto this. Now you talked about independent book publishing. Correct. The agent is gone. Right. And why? I know we're jumping around. Sure, here, why not? Um, well, you know, uh, agents, uh, you know, I very much appreciate my agent. She did a lot of wonderful things, helped me start my career, got me a great book deal uh, for two books through Del Rey. Uh, I uh, talked to her often. I really appreciated her wise counsel. Uh, but, you know, people need to understand that all author-agent relationships are business relationships, and as such, they are, they are subject to cooling uh, for a variety of reasons, and it doesn't mean that... Uh, and it's just this is just the way of of the world. And in fact, uh, you know, um, uh, sometimes you got to make make that call. Yeah. And that's the call that you make. And sometimes the agent is relieved. <laughs> so, oh. so you know, and people got to realize that um, it's um, you know because it's a business relationship, it's about making money. And you know, uh, if authors, you know, most authors are have writing books is their second job, if you can call it a job, mm -hmm. okay? Uh, so you, unless you have a book coming out every year and your agent is getting that 15% every year, you're a less attractive prospect. Sure. Um, so uh, I would say to everybody who's listening, you know, uh, I think the author's name is Dean Wesley Smith. You should check out his blog because he's got all kinds of great stuff on there basically disillusioning writers of their uh, their fantasies about you know what it is to be a professional writer and and a lot of that has to do with thinking that you have to have an agent or that an agent should be kind of like your hand-holding guide and all that agents should uh, and I'm not speaking about my relationship with my author I'm, with my uh, agent I'm talking about Dean Wesley Smith's uh, general advice but you know you don't need an agent to say I'm not gonna submit this novel or whatever. Your agent's job is to help you sell your your work and to get your work out, and not to make the call that your work shouldn't go out. You okay. don't need another gatekeeper. Yeah. Your agent's job is to negotiate deals, and uh, if they're not if they're not sending out your work, uh, they're not negotiating your deals. Well, so. that, that's what the book publisher does, right? They either take your take your work and say sorry, no, or change this, right? Exactly. Yeah, that's right. Why a trilogy? Yeah. Um, well, you know, uh, 
I used to think that writing a series of books was just a trashy concept. You know, as far as I was concerned, a novel is supposed to represent the single most experience in your characters' lives. So the very act of coming out with a sequel means you're saying, haha, that first event wasn't really important, now we're getting to the really important stuff, which cheapened. It's basically, you know, a Star Trek character can die once. Only one Star Trek character can die once. If anybody else dies and comes back, then you've cheapened the first death, and that's why, you know, Star Trek really wounds us so many times, right? Mm -hmm. Because, you know, Spock can go blind. No, he's not. Spock's dead. No, he's not, etc. Kirk, Scotty, Chekhov. I'm surprisingly forgiving about that stuff. <laughs> but anyway. Yes. So, um, but then I, I thought, well, you know, I have, was a comic reader for a very long time, and comics are serials, and my favorite type of television is serialized television shows such as Battlestar Galactica, The Wire, Breaking Bad, just to name a few American shows, great Canadian shows such as J-Pod and Intelligence and a variety of others. Those are excellent because they are serials, because they build on the ideas of one and they flow through and so that you can see great stuff that you couldn't contain in this short space. A trilogy or a series, I came to understand, gives people the opportunity to first... Now, if, they've got, if they're taking home a 700-page book, as an example, they say, I've got to read this. But then, for many folks, it's just intimidating. You know, which would you rather have? An instruction manual that's three pages or one that's 50 pages? Yeah. You know, so novels can be the same thing. We're busy people. You've got a book in front of you that's only 200 pages, 250. Go like, yeah, I can get through this. I might even get through this by this weekend or maybe tonight. So I also realized that, yeah, it's, it's a good idea to present stuff in, in shorter components and also hopefully then uh, I can... I can uh, eventually going to release an omnibus edition, which is called uh, the Unified Edition. And that will have all three volumes together, including material that wasn't previously released, such as a glossary, a history, and some other neat doodads. So does this also give you an opportunity to, I mean, because you've written the story. That's right. Does it give you an opportunity, book one is out, to go back and, and sort of tweak the, the second part and third part? Yep, absolutely, because you can also see what people are responding to. And, and you know, there there isn't, sometimes when we have limitations, such as the simple fact of our mortal existence, we all know that we are going to die. So we create philosophies that valorize death in some way, and we say that it is, it's, it's good that people should die because this allows us to do this and that and blah, blah, blah. This is, this is you know, a, uh, a retcon, right? You're, you're justifying the reality because you can't change it. So, um, so the attitude has been that writers, once their book is out, they should just let it be. Well, digital publishing means that you don't need to do that. Yeah. Why? If you, people jump on Lucas. And some of his digital uh, innovations for the re-release of the original trilogy were mistakes. Having the big creature walk you know, in front of the camera in Moss Eisley, you know, that's a, just a terrible composition. There's no logic for that. Okay. Having Han Solo step on Jabba's tail. Oh, my God. Terrible. To, you know, are you going to walk up to the Godfather and pat him on the belly and then <laughs> kick him in the bum? Like, it doesn't make sense. But because people are so mad about those, they forgot how many of those digital innovations were outstanding. Mm -hmm. And the same thing with the uh, the remastered Star Trek. Some of that stuff is just gorgeous. Yeah. You know. So there's no reason, and therefore, why can't writers do it? And what if you go back to your your prose and you go like, oh, you know, that's an awkward sentence. That sounds like writing. I want to get that out of there. I want it. It shouldn't sound like writing. It should just flow in the mind. 
it should be it should uh, you know it should be mimetic right? yeah you know it should it should it should simulate reality to the extent that you're not aware of the fact that you're reading and you might have changed your attitude about something you might think you know I was too harsh about that I I'm not fair to this character or you know let's say you just got out of I'm not referring to myself here but you got out of a bad relationship and so you wrote something that you know you should have you were too hard on your old girlfriend, or maybe you know some. You'll hear some women say things like, "I hate men because they'd had a bad boyfriend or a few bad boyfriends." Or I'll never drink again. <laughs> yes, all these exactly. <laughs> yeah. And you know, people gotta step back from these things and realize, okay, I wrote that. I was angry. I was sad. I was depressed. I was weird. I thought this was hilarious, and nobody laughed. And then those are things that, yeah, why shouldn't you change your own art? Yeah, you know, make it. So this is, and when you're an independent publisher, you're not gonna, you don't have to pay the publisher to uh, to make these changes, which is what you would have to do. Why not? Why shouldn't you do these things? So, to what degree has uh, has have eBooks helped you to to facilitate the shift from having an agent and all that stuff to being an independent publisher? I mean, that's that is uh, that is the way to go. See, the, the originally, you know, independent publishers, uh, you know, were called were hit with um, uh, pejoratives such as vanity publishers uh, and uh, also. Um, uh, you know, chances are you went to a printer called a vanity publisher. You got your stuff done out of your own vanity. Um, you uh, were called self-published, right? And these were slurs. And here's the fascinating thing. I'll just make a, guess, a more global comment right here. Uh, those of us who took English degrees, literature degrees, were in that realm, you know, a lot of us were politically left, for instance. In other words, we would have understood why Ralph Nader used a phrase like growing up corporate to, to denounce the, the, the culture in, that, that made us more attuned to car brands than to types of animals, as an, as, which is his example, right? Mm -hmm. So we easily supported independent filmmakers, independent musicians, all painters are independent, all sculptors, all photographers, unless they work for a newspaper or magazine, and on it goes. We believed that Art was the realm of the artist, and no damn corporation was going to tell people what to do, except with books. <laughs> with books, unless a corporation told you that that's a book, that's not a book, sir. It's not Haynes until Haynes says it says Haynes. No, this is, this is crazy, and I used to buy this. I used to believe that, no, publishing your own work through any means was the domain of a loser. Hmm. Well, you know, uh, Homer was a loser, I guess, you know? So, uh, and so was every other writer up until the era of the corporation. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's an absurd uh, fantasy, and I don't know why so many of us, I don't know why I believed it, I don't know why so many people believed it, but we did. And so technology allows us to have the sovereignty over our own art. I would, I would posit that it was the invention of the printing press that may have led to the shift of writing, of authorship, Mm -hmm. in, in the direction of something more like a business because you would have had relatively few printing presses. They would have been in the hands of businesses. Mm -hmm. And so it would have eventually come to a point where the businesses started, I'm not going to use the word censoring because I don't think that's the correct word, but vetting, I suppose, yeah. mm -hmm. what they would publish because they would want a return on it. Yes. And that's probably what led to the modern publishing industry. So I think and I, that's based on nothing yeah. but speculation. <laughs> no, I just want to say that. I think that's, that's a very logical speculation. Um, the interesting thing is that, of course, the filmmaking industry is much newer and therefore is, you know, even more corporate because of the expense of making movies. So why don't we have the cultural attitude that an independent movie is junk or an independent album is junk, whereas the independently released book is assumed to be garbage? That's a good question. 
I actually have no idea. I couldn't even begin to speculate why that is. Maybe, okay, I, I'm spitballing here. Right. <laughs> because publishing has been so institutionalized for so long, mm -hmm. that's probably just kind of a built-in conceit. Whereas, because filmmaking is so new and has always had, I want to say, a little bit of a revolutionary mindset about it. The independent filmmaker is still seen as kind of like, yeah, a guy on the edge, an artist, as opposed to some hack with a pencil <laughs> and in his mom's basement writing his manifesto. Yeah. Um, that's probably true. And I would say that the internet has liberated uh, filmmaking, has made it a lot more accessible even mm. to plebeians like us <laughs> uh, than, than even independent, like, I'm going to say more classical independent film was. Right. Still, you still had to be kind of known and you still had to have a budget. Right. Now you can slap together something on your MacBook and, yeah. and yeah. a million people on YouTube can enjoy it and you've suddenly become somebody. Uh, and that's kind of the same thing with, uh, I'm going to say, independent publishing as well. It's, it's freed mm. it up so that it is within the reach of everybody. Yeah. Not to say that no. everything that comes out is going to be great. No, any more than the material that comes out of corporate publishing. And in fact, really, what we need to fall back on is that there is no such thing as good or bad art. There's, what you, there's four things. What you like, what you don't like, what you claim you like in order to maintain your status, <laughs> and what you claim to dislike in order to avoid losing any status. Hmm. So, you know, uh, yeah, the, the, I, I th what you were saying a minute ago really points me to, uh, I think you've helped me understand something, that, that there is the, um, uh, the filmmakers, these, especially in the United States, these, you know, a lot of filmmakers in the 1960s, who would include, for instance, let's say, in the, then in the 70s, people like Francis Ford Coppola, George Lucas, uh, John, uh, is it, uh, I want to say Mil... John... Milius? Mm, don't know. Okay, at any rate... Um, a bunch of these other guys, you're getting it right now off the old Computrex. The power of Google. Yes. Um, and, you know, a lot of these other filmmakers who were in that, uh, that cinema, that American zoetrope uh, realm, and, you know, Scorsese and these other guys, they were guys who were kind of like the Easy Rider, even though Easy Rider is a product of that thing. You, you pictured these as young, you know, these, you know, tough, young, white, you know, poor and middle class guys on motorcycles making movies, right? They were like a gang. You know, they were like Fonzies, yeah. right? Yeah. And so I think that that, yeah, helps. You know, there was an era when film was just just from big, huge corporate. They had the studio system. And these guys broke out of it. They were the rebels. And I think that maybe now we finally got a few, some bigger name authors who have decided to be rebels against that system. And that's helped to make it clearer that, you know, hey, this is actually a kind of a pretty neat thing. And, you know, people who oppose this, often do it for, you know, reasons that, that don't hold up. I mean, they'll say, yeah, but what about all the junk that's streaming out? And again, well, if you don't like it, then it's junk. Yeah, don't you know. consume it. Well, yeah. The junk almost kind of takes care of itself because if somebody self-publishes something and it's terrible, they're probably not going to self-publish again. Yeah. And if they do, I mean, they've, they'll have their own little niche and it's not going to make a big cultural mm -hmm. impact. But the people who are making a cultural impact benefit from it a mm -hmm. great deal more because they're gonna, the diamonds are gonna shine through the rough all the time. Well, and I mean, I, like I, I, I completely agree with what you're saying, and I, I'll, I'll, I'll take it a step further in, in that um, when I'm saying that if you don't like it, it's junk. What I mean is, anything you don't like ranks in your own mind as junk. Yeah. You know, except for the stuff that you claim to like to avoid losing status. So, um, 
Theodore Sturgeon, the science fiction writer, made a comment about art and reality that has come to be known as Sturgeon's Law. He said, 90% of everything is crap. You know, if we think of plays, Elizabethan plays, and, and, and uh, from the, you know, obviously the time of Shakespeare, um, why don't we study more than Shakespeare when we're in high school? Yeah. Because almost all of that was so bad, not according to me, because I haven't read any of it, because it hasn't been reprinted, so I couldn't have read it, but because the people of the time considered it to be so forgettable that it didn't get preserved. So all it means is that you get enough. If people like something they regard it as good, and that's all that good or brilliant means, is they like it. So with whether it's independently published, I mean, people are jumping on Fifty Shades of Grey, and I didn't even know what that was until a few weeks ago. And they're saying, oh, it's garbage, it's this, it's that. It's, it's, they either hate it because of pornography, or they hate it because it's not good enough pornography, or whatever. It's like, <laughs> look, you know, it's just people are reading a book. They're not hurting anybody. Um, you don't like it, why don't you just say you don't like it? Or be more honest, you haven't read it, and you don't like what you think it is. Uh, as far as uh, books and all, and, and everything else, it's like, if you like it, say that you like it. Don't, let's, let's I know I'm on this again, but I'm saying, let's stop talking about best books. Yeah. Because that's, that's deceitful. Let's talk about favorite books, because that's what it is. The, the Giller Prize is the fa goes to the book that that set of judges of the books that they were given to choose among was probably their favorite book yeah. and may not have been. It may have been the book that two factions you know, had to settle and say, well, we'll go with this one because we hate that one and you guys hate this one, so we'll choose this one. In fact, wasn't there a book prize that didn't get awarded? Uh, I, I don't know if it was the Giller, but there was one recently and the, the one of the judges who was the chair of the committee uh, charged with coordinating the, the judging of these books set out to try to explain why they couldn't come to an agreement. It was really interesting. But you're right, it's completely subjective. There's no, I mean, the I could try to give literary reasons for it, but you're still going to disagree with what I'm saying. Right. So yes. it's a really interesting discussion. Well, you know, I mean, I, I'll just kind of make one footnote please, on this. Please, yeah, please. I came to realize this whole, this my hobby horse of there's no such thing as good or bad art. It's just what you like and dislike. Because I came through, I confronted my own arrogance on this. For years, I was trying to figure out if I could just find the words to explain to people why Battlestar Galactica is so much better than um, Star Trek The Next Generation. If I could just make the case to them so that they could understand. If I could just have them be educated in the things that I was educated <laughs> in. If they could just learn. And then I realized, what? Bullshit am I saying and am I thinking? I'm saying that people are wrong because they don't agree with me on something that is a matter of whether they like it or not. I mean, uh, I like Battlestar Galactica, and I realize this now, not just because I like the aesthetics, but because its politics are so close to mine. So, of course I like it. That doesn't mean that it's better than something else, because there is no better than in art. It's yeah. just whether you like it. So anyway, sort of I end of rant. Totally hear what you're saying. It's like asking a Republican what they thought of the West Wing. They're going to fucking hate it, because it's the West Wing with a Democratic president. Do you have a business plan, but you're not sure where to go from there? Do you want to increase sales? Get noticed? Wow your audience? Make your mom proud? Well, we've got you covered. We're connected, we're creative, and we're innovative. We are strategy first. If you've got a great product or service and you want the whole world to take notice, call Focus Communications. Let's start a conversation. Go to focuscom.ca. 
Yes, gentle listener, it's once again time for Story Slam. The Unknown Studio is a big supporter of the Edmonton Story Slam, where local writers have five minutes to tell a story, which is then scored by the audience. The winner earns themselves a big hat full of cash and also get to be featured on the Unknown Studio. Now, normally, we feature a second story that we really enjoyed, but this month we're going to do something a little different. We're actually going to play two stories we really enjoyed because we couldn't pick which one we liked more. So let's start things off with A Lighter Tale by Alyssa Hudson. My best friend and I turned 30 the same year. She has recently begun the eighth year of the unicorn and rainbow potpourri she likes to call marriage. Until recently, I have been a defiant ball of single. Until recently. Recently, I betrayed my resolve to never feel anything stronger than a gust of wind. Recently, I closed my eyes and grasped the hand of my inner Thelma and flung myself forward. Recently, I fell in love. Unfortunately, I fell straight through. The tough-as-nails, ball-busting cliché of a 21st-century feminist hit the floor like any other girl, reduced to a puddle and at risk of ruining the hardwood. And true to the code of the sisterhood, there was my best friend to sponge me up and wring me into shape. Considering the wild success of her marriage and the euphoria that she got to wake up to every morning, you can imagine that no matter what she would have said to console me would have made her sound like an asshole. (laughs) She went with a trite shrug and mumbled, there are plenty of fish in the sea. Next time you'll find someone nice. I realize, though, that if you're allergic to tuna, it doesn't much matter how many of them there are to choose from. And that was the problem. There are plenty of fish. There just isn't that wide of a variety. Who is it that I'm hoping there are plenty of? Maybe Craig? He was a friend of a friend who I met when I was out with a group of people at Hudson's downtown. Suddenly, all of our friends were gone. We shared a cab, and I said he could crash at my place since he's from Calgary and didn't have a place to sleep. The minute we got inside, we started making out, and it was clear that I had inadvertently stumbled into a one-night stand. I had to confess that I was on my period, and he kept repeating that over and over. You want to, but you're on your period. You want to, but you're on your period. (laughs) He fingered me anyway and said that I was tight but a little dry. So I took out my supersized tampon, and then the sex got much more usual. (laughs) Or maybe someone like my first boyfriend, Julius. He was nice and chill and low maintenance. Then he stopped calling. After three weeks of unreturned phone calls, I guessed that we had broken up. I consoled myself with an outdoor romp. And a week later, he called in the middle of the night, wondering where I've been. I said I assumed he didn't want to see me anymore and thought we broke up, and that if we are still together, I cheated on him. (laughs) He said that he was sorry, and he loved me, and he'd be over in two hours so we could talk it all out. I didn't hear back until he called a month and a half later, asking where I've been. Or maybe the guy whose favorite pickup line was apparently, if I could kiss you once, I'd kiss you a thousand times, but I'd give it all up just to kiss you once which sounds sweet, but means almost nothing after you've already kissed him, even less in the middle of bumping uglies. (laughs) I've tried out all kinds of fish. 
big fish, small fish, small, short, fi short fish, quick fish, French fish, nice fish, old fish, one fish, two fish, red fish, blue fish. One refused to wear a condom. His argument was, one, he was a virgin, so he shouldn't have to. Two, he doesn't like the feeling of sex when he's wearing a condom. <laughs> one cried because he liked me too much. One couldn't get it up, so he used my hairbrush instead. <laughs> One was a self-proclaimed dom, but he wouldn't even spank me because he was worried his mom would hear. <laughs> One broke up with me for a fictional character, and then months later told me he wondered if we'd ever get back together. I said I wasn't into it. He said, well, I didn't say I was, I was just wondering, you know. There may be plenty of fish in the sea, but I haven't found a good recipe for any of them. Even the ones I love, even the fish who prove to me that I have real feelings and inspire me to quit smoking and who I can literally hold in my arms and still feel like I am not close enough. Even the fish that I love, I just can't keep down. Our second story isn't as quirky, in fact, it's pretty poignant. It comes from reader Laura Lynn Johnston. Sheena was the kind of girl you couldn't forget even if you tried. She had plenty of quirks, but almost all of them were endearing. She would eat all the way around the outside of a piece of toast before once biting into the middle. Her socks never ever matched, and she would always sneeze in threes. She was pretty soft-spoken, but she could belt out Reba McIntyre like it was nobody's business. I've always hated country music, but I'd never mind it if Sheena was singing it. When we were kids, she would put on some ruby red lipstick, pop open the top button of her blouse, and put on a whole show for me and my sister in the yard, singing about how she didn't want to be a one-night stand. Jane would lose her shit laughing, but I loved every single minute of it. She almost always had her mouth slightly open, as if she was perpetually awed by the world around her. It didn't bother me too much unless she was looking right at me when she was doing it. Otherwise, I always felt like she was sort of mocking me. She had these really stubby fingers, too. You know when they say that somebody is all thumbs? She was like that, except literally all her fingers look like thumbs. You can't make any kind of music with hands like that. Now that I think about it, she actually had really long toes. Short fingers, long toes. It's like her body only knew how to grow digits in one length, thumb length. I remember those long toes sticking out over the edges of her sandals in the summer, always painted her same favorite coral pink. Don't get me wrong. Stubby fingers, long toes and all, Sheena was a pretty girl. Not like knockout gorgeous or anything, but she had a really sweet look about her that grew on you quickly. Big emerald eyes, soft rosy cheeks, and freckles everywhere. My sister was always jealous of her hair, long, chestnut brown, and wound into these tight little ringlets. Jane's was just sort of limp and always a bit frizzy. Poor plain Jane. Of course, I wasn't there when it happened, but it's like I can see everything as if I was. I can see her in the car with the other girl, driving down the highway, singing along to some country song at the top of their lungs. The windows are rolled down to let in the last of the summer wind. Those beautiful shiny ringlets blowing all over the place. I can see that big smile on her face. I can see the car making that last big left turn up the road into Gibbons. I can see the semi-truck just as it makes impact with her door. I can even hear her scream for that split second between she when she catches a glimpse of the truck and when she's obliterated by all that twisted metal and glass. I can see all her hopes and dreams evaporate. It's been such a long time, but I still have dreams about her once in a while. We're sitting on the edge of the dock out at our mom's farm, letting our feet dangle in the water and having a conversation about everything and nothing at the same time. But I never get the chance to ask her the things I really want to ask her before I jolt up in bed. It's always like that over the, after those dreams, 
where I'm sitting straight up before I even realize that I'm awake and she's not there. I'm really not a crier, but those dreams always bring me to tears. I get up, go into the bathroom, and stand in front of the mirror. I look at my own reflection and whisper to her between sobs, and where are you now? Where are you when I need you? I wish I could tell her I was sorry that I didn't visit her in the hospital that time she got kicked off of that horse and smashed up her ribs. I was so mad at her for going to the school dance with Will Sutherland instead of me. I thought I'd never want to speak to her again. She didn't even like him, but I should have been there to keep her company. I married some young fool that was all arms and legs. He's a good man as far as men go. I like him because he's got big green eyes and freckles all over and curly brown hair. He's also got really long fingers to go along with those long arms and legs. You should hear him bang out some jazz on the piano. You know how much I like to dance that stuff. He calls me Sunny instead of Susie or Susan, and his mouth always stays closed when he's not talking. I think he really loves me in spite of all my flaws. I've never told him about Sheena, though, because I know he could tell right away that I didn't love him, and I'd really like to keep him around. I know Sheena would be disappointed in me and call me a hypocrite, especially after that big fuss I made about Will Sutherland, but I was never going to love another woman even a fraction as much as I loved her. I felt like I'd be even more of a fraud if I had have even tried. When I miss her too much, Jane will drive out to her mum's old farm and sit with me on the dock. She'll even let me hold her hand, but she draws the line at letting me paint her toenails coral pink. She knows I stole that bottle of polish from the top of Sheena's dresser the day after the funeral, and she thinks I'm a little sick for even asking. But overall, Jane gets it, even if she'll never really get me. Jane lost that little baby of hers when she was eight months pregnant, so she knows what it's like to think you're going to have someone forever, then all of a sudden they're gone. Last week, I took a drive up to that intersection on Highway 28, right outside Gibbons. I parked in the ditch and just sat there, staring at the pavement for who knows how long. I guess I must have fallen asleep, because I was suddenly standing out there in the middle of the highway, looking into what used to be the Red Impala. It was something out of my worst nightmare. Sheena sticking out of the wreckage, lying sideways on the asphalt. She's a little torn up, but somehow she's still alive, though barely, just waiting to slip away. I try to move towards her, but I'm frozen to the spot, and she's just out of reach. I try to scream her name, but nothing comes out. The sparkle's gone out of her eyes. She's looking right at me, but it's like she can't see me. It's as if I'm seeing her through a one-sided mirror, and all she can see is that she's dying there alone. And there's nothing more I want in the world than to lie down and die on the pavement there right beside her when she whispers, where are you now? Where are you when I need you? And finally, the number one story of the night. This month's winning tale was by Chris Samuel. I was beginning to think you weren't coming, Paul said without looking up from his phone. A half-emptied pint glass was at his elbow, and judging from the slight flush in his face, I knew it wasn't the first. I knew his drunk face. I was thinking maybe I shouldn't come. I know how you can get when you're drinking, I replied, with half of a smile, hoping that maybe things would take on a jovial note. They didn't. Paul looked up and fixed me with a stare that could freeze vodka. Don't say anything, just be quiet and listen. But especially, do not tell me how much you like her or how happy you are right now because I, I don't know what I'll do. He sighed. It was a real shitty thing you did, you know that? I wasn't sure whether to answer his question or shut up as I had been previously directed. As I was navigating this dilemma, an uncomfortably peppy waitress interrupted to take our drink order. Ah, excuse me, I'm going to need a few seconds. Sure, she flashed us a painfully cheerful smile and uh, wore a slightly confused look when it wasn't returned. She backed away quickly. Paul continued, look, I'm not mad. I'm really not. I get it. You guys are both adults. Jane and I weren't together at the time, and shit happens. I get that. 
But man, you should have asked me first. We were together for three years, you know? And he kept going about the importance of trust and some metaphor about stealing another man's lunch. I wanted to point out that they had been together for closer to two and a half years, and for the last, oh, eight months or so, they'd just been, they hadn't been dating, just sleeping together. But facts are a poor shield for attacks from the heart. Instead, I said, look, I fucked up. You have every right to be upset. It's my bad. My mouth kept spewing these pre-planned platitudes and apologies, but the importance of friendship and some metaphor about a broken bone healing stronger than it was before it was broken. But I didn't think I fucked up. I don't think he had any right to be upset. Should I have asked him? What does that even mean? Did I need to get some permission slip signed? Look, I know what the bro code says, okay? Bros before hoes and all other kinds of misogynistic bullshit. But Jane isn't a hoe. She's a fucking person. An intelligent, funny, beautiful person. And she gets to go home with whoever she wants. Especially when her boyfriend, no, her ex-boyfriend, tells her he doesn't see a future with her, ever. How can he claim to be upset after that? So, when I was done saying my hollow words, I clenched my jaw and met his eyes. We sat in silence, having the kind of wordless conversation that's only possible between friends. He clearly thought my apology was bullshit, and he knew that I thought my apology was bullshit, and he knew that I knew that he thought my apology was bullshit. The peppy waitress began to head over to our table, but found something more important to do along the way. Paul spoke up first. Is that it then? Have you said your piece? I replied, yeah. I said my piece. Okay, buddy. We'll have a good one. He looked around to flag down the obnoxiously peppy waitress. But as he turned away, I saw the lightning flash on the horizon. Sadness rolled across his eyes. It hit me all at once. This had not a single fucking thing to do with Jane. He was disappointed in me. He was sad about losing me. He felt betrayed by me. It was my moment of discovery, my eureka, my grand reveal. And it was so obvious that I didn't know how I missed it before. And I felt like a triple A asshole. I wanted to claw back my hollow words and fill them with meaning. But it was too late for that. So instead, I turned to our unreasonably peppy waitress and said, wait, hold on a sec. Let me get the next round. A big congratulations to Chris and to all the readers, Edmonton Story Slam goes every third Wednesday at the Haven Social Club. That's 15120 Stony Plain Road Northwest. Everyone is welcome to come out and be part of the audience or get on stage and read a story of your own. Maybe we'll see you there October 17th. Are you looking for current, relevant, highly specialized digital media instruction? You need to seek out 
The Guru. Guru Digital Arts College offers intense six-month programs that simulate real-world projects. You'll work in small classes in a casual professional environment and meet industry pros who offer a mentor-style approach to learning. Some institutions make the same claim, but with Guru, you'll develop the confidence to get out and become a part of the digital media community. Come visit us anytime. Check out a class, talk with our instructors, and be part of the Guru experience. For more information, email info at gurudigitalarts.com or call 1-877-429-4878. take a moment yeah to thank some very special people mm. sponsors sponsors yeah. do you have a list i'll read the list we don't oh but how about this we'll tell you the names of our sponsors sounds good and you can guess what they do and try and do a quick ad for them okay so our first sponsor is focus communications focus communications provides alberta's best the leading edge in digital imaging of your penis <laughs> that is close they are a public they are public. Go they're, on. They're a pubic. They're a public. They are a public relations firm based here in Edmonton, responsible for such things as images of penises rendered digitally. And they they pay you. you they give you money. They have given us money. And and you say disparaging remarks about them. I love, to be fair, he's riffing off your disparaging remark. On well, yeah, but I mean, you know, if you see a guy, you know, smoking <laughs> meth, uh, you know, that's no excuse for you to start smoking meth. That's uh, fair. No one's saying we're smoking meth here. No one's saying. No one's saying that. Uh, so there are public relations firms responsible for such things. <laughs> for such. Oh, tight. You are the sinister minister, Faust. Thank you. They're responsible for such things as Race Week Edmonton and a lot of the uh, online stuff you see from the Ford dealerships in Northern Alberta. Did you say Race Week? Race. I did not say... Did I say Rice no, Week? No, you said Race Week. Race Week. It sounds very contentious. <laughs> this is where the super-duper magical exactly. thing Exactly. Yes. It has to do with the indie. All the indie, of course. Yes. Indie publishing. Yeah. Our other sponsor, of course, Guru Digital Arts College. Guru Digital Arts College is your best source for education for entry into all fields of digital life, including web page design, video game making, and digital imaging of your future life and mate. We'll help you create the wife that you want now. <laughs> that is... That's much closer to the truth than the that's previous That's more or less exactly right, yes. So I don't think we have to say anything more about it. No, I think that pretty much covers our sponsors for this week. Yeah. Thank you very much, Minister Faust. My pleasure. We've got a few more minutes. I do want to talk about... Alan the... Alda should have played Ralph Nader. Yeah, yeah. He was good as a Republican senator. Oh, I love Alan Alda. He's awesome. But he looks like Ralph Nader. He, he does. He would have made he, a great yeah, Ralph Nader. yeah. And his character was excellent. That is a discussion that, and by the way, I mean, we're, I'm saying we're almost out of, out of time, but this just means we have to have you back on the show. Uh, because the great. last hour has flown yeah. by. It would be great to be back on the show. This is, it was great sitting down with you guys. One of the things that I do want to Much older on, than you. <laughs> I just want to just make that point again. That's bullshit. <laughs> so is he saying that we are lucky to be so gleaning his wisdom or that yes, he's, he's enjoying the, hanging out with some No, I'm people. the boss of you. Okay. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. I'm not going to argue with you. Because um, we, as you mentioned before, the last time we saw each other was yes. in Pure Spec last Correct. year right. on the panel. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I want to talk about the concept that you presented to us all, which yes. was 
you're gonna have to you're gonna have to re-explain it because it I'm gonna get the phrase. Was wrong. this about Guinan and about uh, but the, you use the a lady? For, yeah. So this is so uh, so um, Spike Lee modified a term, uh, and then the writer um, Nnedi Okorafor, a Nigerian American science fiction fantasy author, wrote an essay that's on Strange Horizons. So this is the phrase. Google it because you should definitely read her essay. It's super duper magical Negro. Right. That's what it was. The previous expression had been magical Negro, and then Spike Lee added the super duper part. And uh, <laughs> Nnedi Okorafor wrote specifically on what this archetype of super-duper magical Negroes in the work of Stephen King. Now, for folks who are unfamiliar with the term, what it means is that in particularly the work of uh, Euro-American writers, there is an archetype of a, a colored person. It doesn't have to be an, an African. It could be, for instance, uh, you know, an, uh, some Aboriginal American, such as a Cree or... Um, uh, sorry, Ojibwe or, or Mohawk and the other nations from there. But is it not? It's but it's not as simple as saying non-Caucasian, is it? Because could could Spock be considered? Oh yes. Well, keep in mind that Spock, you know, isn't. I mean, by definition, he's not a Caucasian, right? Yeah. I mean, he's yeah. a green-skinded right. uh, off-worlder. So sure. you know. Um, uh, so the idea, but Spock, Spock is a fully realized character, so he doesn't meet this definition. So I should get the definition. Yes. Basically, it is a it is probably a colored person whose role in the story isn't that of other characters to have their own interiority, to have feelings and hopes and dreams and their own drive and their own goals that are about them. Their goal is to help some white person of probably higher status than them to achieve their goals and then to kind of politely get out of the way or die. Mm -hmm. Now, if you look at... Politely die. Yes. (laughs) If you look at Ben Kenobi, Ben Kenobi assists Luke to achieve his his destiny. But he does so with such, uh, first of all, we see the intelligence about him is clear. His heroism is clear. He does sacrifice himself for Luke, but it's not just for Luke. You know, it's for the entire rebellion. And he was also part of that whole culture. Yeah, he's like he's got alien. a history in everything. He's got a history. And we know about some of that history. And so he's a, you know, he's a real person in that. He's as well realized as any other character in that story. Super Duper Magical Negroes, and I, I, to me, one of the best examples is, you know, and of course now Will Smith will never appear in any of my uh, scripts if I am so lucky to have movies. Um, but uh, in the film uh, The Legend of Bagger Vance, Will Smith it p- perfectly embodies uh, this, with one exception is that he is, he's clearly smart. He's smart. But he, is, uh, he has no role except to help this white man uh, get his game back, and some people make the argument that this is all a big Freudian symbol with the golf, the stick, and the balls, and the alleged sexual superiority of African men. So he's going to help him get this sexual. Uh, he's going to get it, help him get his groove back because he is disconnected from his girlfriend or fiance, and he's going to help this guy to you know to rub the grass the right way, which is both literal and you know metaphorical in this particular case, so that he can put it in the hole, yeah. right? And that's what it's, and then he's just, he's just gone. It's also, it's totally logical in this film because here he is, he's clearly, he's a, uh, like other African-American, he's a West African-American, he's got the features, he, and he's, nim- he's, you know, mincing around this Southern U.S. environment in the 1930s, um, and he is treated as, by Euro-Americans as if he's another Euro-American. In other words, he's not being threatened with being lynched at any point. Okay, uh, Nobody seems to notice his race, which is simply not credible. It's not credible in that environment. He's, in fact, in some ways, he's treated as a, as a high-status character. Um, 
better example is the guy uh, in The Green Mile. Now, I've got to be clear here. I haven't watched The Green Mile, and I haven't read the book, The Green Mile. So I'm not going to slam the content. I'm just going to talk about Nettie Okorafor's points about this. But this is the more, and much like Mother Abigail's character in The Stand, you have characters, they have low intelligence, they may speak with animals, so they're more, they're more natural. They're not intellectual. Right? And he absolutely does in this film. Yes. Yeah. Uh, he's big and brawny, so again, he's more animal-like than even human. It's why if you tell somebody that he's a natural musician, and this is often done in a racialized context, it's not a compliment because birds are naturally musical. Uh, it's if you say somebody he's a natural athlete, that's not a compliment because horses run quickly. You're giving somebody a compliment when you point out their hard work, their dedication, the intellectual prowess that they give, that they bring to the game. Those things say that you're respecting the, the human in them. Mm -hmm. So when you have Mother Abigail, who, again, she's uneducated, she's old, she's, they're desexualized characters. I mean, no, you know, I haven't seen The Green Mile, but I'm guessing that there's no case where a white man has to worry that his white wife is going to prefer that tall black character or it, does that happen no no in yeah. fact quite the opposite he is accused of raping and killing children oh there you so go so it just it just it just builds the case yes, for the exactly yeah and you know there was a movie the hand that rocks the cradle which uh, yeah. had uh, the guy the black ghostbuster you know which is really like the token ghostbuster was Ernie black. Hudson yes Ernie Hudson who was great in Oz who was actually a terrific actor yeah but in this he plays a mentally retarded man who is uh, he's somehow a caretaker for a, a family's little girl sort of he's a caretaker I don't know how you know that happened but at any rate so he basically saves the family much in the way that old that a dog would in a Lassie movie for instance yeah. and on it goes so these characters they don't and you know anytime, almost anytime you see any First Nations character in a, a mainstream American movie or, or Canadian Canada's a little bit better on this, but they've got to be magical Indians. You know, they they're in touch with beaver and you know haw, eagle and all, yeah. and they they know they speak to the earth. It's like you know what? I've known a lot of First Nations people uh, in my life as a teacher, as their colleague, or as students, and um, in other realms of life, a lot of my writer friends. Um, None of them can speak to animals. And you know why? Because they're real human beings. That's right. Yeah. Because they're not fantasy. They're not uh, hobbits. Okay. <laughs> And so when you make, you know, when you when you when you present people this way, you're you're really saying that you don't consider them to be real humans. And I'll say one thing for a lot of uh, people who describe themselves as conservatives, and that is that they 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 disregard systemic discrimination. They believe that it doesn't exist. Right. But they say they actually believe, at least as long as they make the argument, they actually believe that people really are equal in terms of their abilities. Because they say, well, why doesn't that guy work harder? If he worked harder, he could get all the things that, that, that I have. They actually, those guys making that argument, some of them at least, don't believe that one population is genetically inferior to another. Right. Because they're saying, no, if you just did the same things, you'd get the same things. Now, again, they miss the point about a lot of other things. Sure. Like, why is it that if I break your legs, I can run faster than you? Yeah. And then I don't get, you know, I can say to you, ha-ha, you can't run quickly. If you have a system set up that does that to whole populations, well, that's systemic discrimination. Mm -hmm. But so with Super Duper Magical Negroes, you know, we had that discussion on the panel. You know, a show that I adored, Battlestar Galactica, a show that, you know, makes my blood boil, Star Trek The Next Generation. And I asked the question, I said, you know, look at Guinan from Next Gen and look at Elosha from Battlestar Galactica. Which show has the worst Super Duper Magical Negro? And it struck me as weird that here, Battlestar Galactica is such a great show in so many regards, and 
you know, here was this just like typical super duper magical Negro character. She she was high status, but again, her role, like the woman in Lost, the African American actor in Lost, was to be um, religious. And in the context of science fiction, which is quite frequently hostile to religion, to be religious is to be sub-intellectual. Yeah. It is to be intuitive as opposed to um, academic. Yeah. Uh, it's to be childish and simple-minded. That's, uh, that makes me want to bring up Shepard Book from uh, Firefly. But we do not have time <laughs> well, and to you, talk about it right funny now. You should, well, not funny you should mention her, but Elosha, I didn't know her name for the longest time. Yeah. I just knew she was the priestess who helped the president with her visions. Yes, yeah. So. And when she dies, we don't care. Like, no. her death is so boring and insignificant that I think a lot of people would have to be reminded that she died. It's just some shitty landmine that kills her. <laughs> yes, that's well, right. Like, yeah. really, I mean, really. Yeah. And the president's upset, and then they move on and find yeah. the era of Apollo. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, nobody, it doesn't really slow them. I don't know if you've watched the, the and I know we're supposed to stop, but I'll just make this okay. last point on great. The Walking Dead. Have you seen The Walking yes. Dead? Yes, okay. I actually have not, but okay. feel free to speak. You haven't apart. seen any of The Walking Dead? I have not had a real interest in it. Okay. You know, I didn't either, but I will say this. It is, okay, The Walking Dead on the level of race, you know, it, it is seriously messed up. The writer, Stephen Barnes, has a great essay online about how, the stuff that's in the comic gets completely mangled according to the wishes, the online stated wishes of the people at Stormfront. Stormfront, you may know, is the leading neo-Nazi website. Okay, So apparently in the comic, there's some really heroic, dashing, interesting, uh, provocative, I guess Han Solo-type black character in there. And all of the things that the Stormfront viewers who liked, uh, you know, The Walking Dead hated about that character in the comic were removed, and then we got a character named uh, T-Dog in yeah, his who's place. who's ignored. Who is terrible. And the only time he gets to say anything that you know is remotely interesting is when he makes, in the context of the show, a, a, a very... In the, the show is making it clear it's to be utterly disregarded. He makes a comment about race and about how he's got no allies in the group. He's the black guy, meaning that he's, he's doomed. And, and then uh, the white wise man tells him, no, you're crazy, that's not real. In other words, you know, every time that any colored person says, or a woman says something about discrimination, the correct response is, you're crazy. No, come on, we live in a, we live in a great place. Everything's perfect. You're wrong. We're all your friends. Yeah. You know, not good enough. And, you know, or a queer person or a person of a different religion or an atheist who's being excluded, etc. It's not good enough to tell people that they're nuts. And in that, that show, uh, The Walking Dead, um, you know, a I had this awesome point. Uh, it's gone. But at any rate, um, uh, so you do see that the, you, know, you get these, oh, yeah, Lost. Lost. The, the woman who is the, 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 she, the first season, she, she sits around and she says, oh, I have faith that my husband's still alive. I've got faith. And I've got this religious feeling in my heart. Faith. She, she contributes nothing to the group except her hope. Her hope. That and her faith. Yeah. And her faith. Yeah. You know, she couldn't be an intellectual. She couldn't be brilliant. In The Walking Dead, there was an African-American woman in that first season. And when she dies, that's the point I was going to make. When she dies, okay, so you got, I'm, I'm going to, this is a spoiler okay. moment, okay? So it's Spoiler the, alert. Spoiler alert. We got it. End of the first season. And a bunch of characters decide, they're at the Center for Disease, Disease Control Atlanta. They've decided, okay, I can't go on any longer. The world has been totally zombified. We're doomed. I'm just going to die here because this place is on self-destruct. Yeah. Okay. So two women decide they're going to die. One is a 
is a white woman who's clearly, you know, she's a fine actor. She was in um, another Frank Darabont movie, The Mist. And she's uh, attractive. That's how most actresses get hired. And then we have, in addition to being fine actors, mm -hmm. and then we have, we have the, uh, I would say, the token African-American woman in the group. So the white woman and the black woman both say, okay, I'm going to die here. I'm not going to escape. And the black woman is the first one to say she's going to die. And the wise white man, the old guy, says something like, no, what? Or even he just sort of hunches his shoulders as if to say, don't do it. And then she says, yeah, I'm going to. And then the white woman says she's going to, and he says, okay, I am going to stay here and die with you because I'm going to manipulate you emotionally to get you to leave here because I'll die and you don't want me to die, so you'll leave. He sits and he's, they have yeah. this long bit. And I keep thinking that woman, the black woman, should say, I'm, I'm sitting right here. Like, <laughs> you didn't say a word you know, to me that I was going to die. And then I don't remember her name. And she's referred to once in season two. And... I'm not saying that those characters would all have liked her or, you know, my point is that she was so obviously a token character yeah. that when she died, her death was meaningless. Whereas every character dies, I think, other than her, it's pretty much it's a big dramatic moment. It usually is, yeah. Yeah. I don't remember her name either. And that's a sad, you know, whereas you watch a show like Homicide, The Wire, Oz, and I'll make the argument, some people would totally disagree with me, that on those shows... There are no black characters. And why? Because all you have are characters. Yeah. You have, like, the mayor in The Wire is an African-American, but you're more aware of his role as the mayor, as a guy who does this or that that you don't like. And then there's Lester Freeman, the heroic crusading detective, and then there's the, the visionary gangster uh, Stringer Bell, and then there's the, the gunman on the street who robs drug dealers, Omar, and there's the kids who go to school... Uh, like such as Michael and Dookie, and those are, you know their names, you know their histories, those are people. Yeah. And that's when a show is doing great work. And then you've got the goof on Inter Star Trek Enterprise. <laughs> what was his name? I was don't know, it? I didn't watch it. Yeah, it just, terrible. It was terrible. Yeah, this guy is, terrible. he's the black character. Yeah. yeah. All right. We need a black character. Sorry. I would... I, think, I, I, think, I legitimately would love to talk for another hour. I think I think we have to do a show all about super duper magical Negroes. That'd be good. I, I really That'd do. I actually feel uncomfortable saying that word. Super? Super? Yes. Ooh, stereo. Go to ministerfaust.com to buy all of my books. They are available immediately for download. You can get them all, and you can also buy paper copies of, of some of my books, and there'll be paperbacks of more of them I brought one that we didn't have a chance to talk about, but that's okay. Uh, are there any events that you're at coming up? Or uh, Yes, I'm speaking on the February, September 28th and 29th. The Canadian Authors Association is having an event in town. I'm giving the keynote on Friday night, and then I'm conducting a six-hour workshop on the Saturday, which is uh, Become a Better Writer in Six Hours. And if you listen to this after September, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll be at I'll be at Pure Spec uh, in Edmonton, the convention in Edmonton in November, and you know there'll be other things. And people should go to ministerbounce.com to hear to watch videos of my giving readings from my books, to view my cinematic trailers, to catch music videos associated with the music in my books, and so forth. Ministerfaust.com. And having sat here and listened. And having listened to you read before, your readings are always really great. You're very animated, and we, we have loved having you on Thank the show. You. In fact, I'm literally animated. I'm actually an anime character when I read. Yes. It's amazing. I think it's time. It is time. For your favorite part of the show. You mean the Fast 15? That is the very time I was referring to. The Fast 15 brought to you by Focus Communications. God, we love <laughs> the those The Focus guys. Communications Fast 15. 
This is how we make money. Hey, uh, I'd do it if I if I could. Yeah. I would. <laughs> if I could make money, I would. Yes. Now, are you familiar with the Fast 15 at all? Oh, the Fast 15. Everybody in Edmonton knows about the Fast 15, but Considering that some people outside of Edmonton are listening to this podcast, you should explain the Fast 15 so that everybody will be in the Well, notes. why don't I do that? So for our tens of listeners who 50s, don't know, Scott, 50s of <laughs> listeners. The Fast 15, Adam asks 15 questions. Yes. 13 of them are standard questions for every one of our guests. Gotcha. Fairly easy, rapid-fire things, which end up taking us off into 10-minute conversations. And then two of them are wild-card questions, which are oh. tailored specifically for you. Rock that box. Okay, here we go. Number one, the Fast 15 with Minister Faust, your favorite food. Oh, wow. You stumped him on the first one. Yeah. <laughs> I'm thinking it's... You know, it's because... I'm sorry. I know you want a rapid fire answer, but the fact is, I'm the kind of guy that if you ask my favorite everything, or anything, I should say, I'll never be able to give you the answer. Well, give Unless us... you say favorite woman, because that's my wife. Yeah, of course. And the reason is simply that I, I am a generalist and I love things widely so i could give you a favorite food that is acceptable you're gonna have to do that because this, these are all favorites oh <laughs> okay okay here's a favorite food bean pie all right your favorite color did you have to say all right no no like I that jeez i mean you know i'm vulnerable here i'm telling you my favorite things a few of my favorite things Sorry. i'm like julie andrews okay let's, and you just stepped on me like mel brooks let's try that again okay you ready uh, yeah. your favorite food Bean pie. That sounds delightful. Yes! That's, Skadoosh! I am hungry for bean pie. What, what about your favorite color? Orange. Uh, Mac, PC, or Linux for some reason? <laughs> People should not be slaves to corporations. Touche. That is an acceptable answer. How about dogs or cats? Dogs. Coffee or tea? Tea. Your favorite holiday? Christmas. Your favorite sport? Oh, uh... Yeah, martial arts. Okay. Your favorite pastime? Spending time with my family. Oh. Your favorite music at this particular moment? Good music. Okay. That's, that's, that's that is, an excellent answer. That might be the best answer I've ever had <laughs> to that question. Uh, your favorite movie right now? Okay, I'll give you my two favorite movies. Okay. Spike Lee's Malcolm X. And, and I'm sad to say I've forgotten the name of the director, but... Uh, uh, Grave of the Fireflies. It's an animated m film. Is that Hayao Miyazaki? That's no, it's his, it's his uh, protege. Satoshi Kon? No. Uh, you'll find it right now online. Yes. Uh, Grave of the Fireflies. Um, I, I, I know a yeah. number of Japanese directors, but I put myself on the spot. Yeah. I'm going to say that it is Iseo Taka... Takahata? Yes, yes, Isao Takahata. Is Isao, there yeah. you go. And uh, very brief, please check it out. Uh, buy this movie. It is, about two Jap it is about two Japanese children at the close of World War II um, and how they attempt to survive uh, the utter collapse of their country. And it, it is shatteringly brilliant. It huh. is apparently a very haunting but beautiful movie. Yes, that's that's fair to say. Haunting but beautiful and uh, and disturbing. I mean, it's you know, if if, if anybody, I doubt anybody listening to this podcast is foolish enough to think that animation is just for kids. Uh, don't show this to your children. No, yeah, please, no. God, <laughs> do not show it to your children. Uh, what about your favorite video game? Right now, sure. My favorite video game is um, Enslaved Odyssey to the West, uh, which is based on the Legend of the Monkey King. 
Interesting. And it's freaking outstanding. And it was uh, it came out in 2010. I used to work in the video game industry. I was a writer. And uh, while I was working on elements of uh, Mass Effect 2, uh, which was mostly writing the codex uh, or revising it, um, uh, th- this other uh, studio was was creating this game and it's interesting to look at Mass Effect 2 and and look at this game and see how different they are and they both have a lot of excellent uh, components but what you know Enslaved has the best digital acting performances that I've ever seen it's got great vocal performances um, it's uh, it's got spectacular uh, backgrounds excellent gameplay hmm. um, uh, it doesn't have the uh, branching storylines of Mass Effect 2. Yeah. Uh, pretty linear? It, it's yeah. pretty linear. Yeah. Um, but I think that people who play this game will be blown away. But it, it was... it was re- Mass Effect 2 was very intelligently released after Christmas. So it meant that people who had already, you know, ah, oh, I played all my games. Yeah. Now there's nothing to do. Whoa, boom, here's a big, <laughs> famous, you know, studio coming out with a game. This other game, Enslaved, that got released in a big, you know, like the basically rush hour. Yeah. And it got it got just. Destroyed, but it's gotten great reviews. I've I've heard of it. It has had great reviews, but it was one of those ones that kind of flew under everyone's radar. Damn. Yes, exactly. And uh, yes. Well, at so. least now I've got something new that I can try. Mm-hmm. So very excited about and that. And Dig Dug. Dig Dug. I loved Dig Dug. Old Dug-Dug. school. Oh yeah. I love that. Yeah. Now, if you could have one superpower, what would it be? Uh, to create superpowers. Okay, that's acceptable. And now I'm really curious about this question. Star Trek or Star Wars? I I can't choose between okay. the two. They're too they're 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 too both too important to me. It's okay. like you know, do you want to live with mummy or do you want to live with daddy? No, I Star can't. Trek would be the answer to that question. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know. If if I could narrow it to just a few Star Treks, then yes, I would I would choose Star. But once you add in you know Voyager and Next Generation and and Enterprise, it heavily you know it tilts away. But then, if you add in the Phantom Menace, and you you know you know it's, yeah. it's you know what you know you've changed my mind on this. Uh, I'll choose Star Trek because because it's an unfair fight. Star Trek has so much to choose from. It's yeah. There's way more content out there, yeah. particularly when it comes to film and television. Anyway, that's although right. I, you know what I will say this: the Star Wars Clone Wars cartoon I really enjoy. Heard great things about. It. That's by uh, Gennady Gennady Tartakovsky, isn't I it? I think so. The guy yeah. who did Samurai Jack. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, Samurai Jack, I didn't watch much of Clone Wars, but Samurai Jack was the first animated series I watched that actually was as exciting as a really well-developed action movie. Yeah. I, in fact, I couldn't believe it. I thought, this is exciting. This is a- thrilling. Yeah. And uh, so if Clone Wars is like that, I'm sure it's worth checking out. It's hmm. very good. I, I recommend it. Now, on to your wild card mm-hmm. questions. Oh, I just assumed Star Trek versus Star Wars was wild card. <sighs> no. I, we asked that of every guest. <laughs> oh, that's yeah. good. Because we care that much. What now, did Stephen Harper say? To that one. Uh, go fuck yourself, Scott and Adam. <laughs> Why are you talking to me? I, uh, I believe his answer was uh, Sequest DS. <laughs> that, is, that is the answer he would have been. So that's a stealth burn. That is a, such a great burn because most people being burned would not even have heard of that show. And you could just say, I bet you really like Sequest DSV. And they'd go, well, what, what is that? And they go, no, I just know you'd like it. And everybody who knows would go, ooh, burn. <laughs> Now, wild card questions. I'm not exactly sure how to ask this one, but maybe the the right way to phrase it is: Who is the least offensive super duper magical Negro? You mean of like of all super duper magical if Negroes? If you're thinking of the entire canon of human history, <laughs> or if you want to limit it to something like science oh, fiction because you're oh, a fan, yeah. right? Right, and a writer. Yeah. 
Yes, ministerfast.com. <laughs> um, so, uh, well, that's a great that's a great question. Oh, good. Um, I'm glad. It really, you know, some people have made the argument that uh, Morpheus uh, from The Matrix is a super duper magical Negro. But I would say, and I say this with not, and this is not irony, and this is not me taking a shot at uh, the Wachowskis. Uh, is that the characters in those movies, even the first one, which is obviously the best of the three, is the characters are not intended to be fully developed three-dimensional people with human psychology. The only character like that at all is uh, Cypher. Mm -hmm. He's the only recognizable human in the movies. Okay, um, so, so basically what I'm saying is that all the characters are as flat as Morpheus. So the fact that Morpheus doesn't have much interiority is just like, Trinity, basically. Yeah. Um, so I would say, but but you you know one could make that argument, um, and I and I and I and and he's just so freaking awesome. Like you know, kids want to be Morpheus. I'm sure. Oh uh, yeah. You know, like I'd I'd love to be Morpheus. He's freaking outstanding. And hell, you know, Jada Pinkett was his girlfriend. I mean, that's that's it just gets better. You know. I am uh, fully on board with your response. Yeah. As is the rest of Earth now. <laughs> <laughs> Adam speaks with a great deal of authority. You're, I'm impressed. Yes. Your last question, I don't know if it's a fair one because we talked about subjectivity, but what, in mm. your opinion, mm. is one of the biggest problems with popular literature today? Don't say Fifty Shades of Grey. That's the obvious answer. No. Well, I think the obvious answer is not enough people are buying my books. <laughs> <laughs> Ministerfaust.com. <laughs> yes, exactly. Okay, so to try to answer the question seriously. Um, you know, honestly, I don't think that. Um, you know, what do you mean? What problems? Okay, that that is an answer. No, but I'm serious. I'm asking you. Every, what? Everyone talks about no one reads enough. Uh, okay, can I can I address these as you bring them up? Okay, this, I no would rather myth people, bust. How about this? Kids don't read enough. Okay, so people who say this don't know what they're talking about. Okay, more human beings in raw numbers and definitely in percentage of the population can read than in any point in the history of the universe. More books are sold than at any point in the history of the universe. And more non-book reading goes on than at any point in all of time. So when people say people don't read, it's like they seem to think that the people are projecting their own, they project their life onto the lives of everybody else. So they, only readers say this kind of stuff. Yeah. So they seem to think that when they were kids, everybody was reading as much as they were. No, wrong. Other readers were reading as much as you were, but everybody else was reading less. Yeah. And, uh, you know, when I was a kid, it was no big deal. You know, if I went, I went to a typical Edmonton school, it was no big deal for a guy back then, as some of my friends did, to say, my dad didn't go past grade four. Why was it no big deal? Because lots of people's dads didn't go past grade four and got good jobs in the trades, and their grandparents certainly did. Yeah. So people mostly who went only to grade four didn't become big book readers. And I'll go one further. Lots of people who are our professionals in non-arts fields don't read novels. They may read uh, trades, trade magazines, but they're not reading books. So if you if you think that you're somehow a better human being or even a standard human being because you say just like crazy weird brags like, when I was a kid, I read Shakespeare. Oh, wow. And do you want a cookie? Yeah. You know, are, are we really supposed really to be do. impressed? I think, I think cookies are awesome. Do. Yeah. Not everybody's favorite show is reading Rainbow. When I'm going to I'm going to throw one more at you. Oh please, I want to bust more. By the way, legitimately was my favorite show when I was a kid. Uh, it's it's a fine Geordie part of the empire. <laughs> reading empire. I think you're really confusing a lot of things yeah, there. I'm sorry. Geordie was the emperor of yeah. the Star Trek. I won't lie, one of the reasons that I started watching Star Trek the Next Generation 
was because LeVar Burton was LeVar on. Burton was the get. People forget about this, and certainly the writers immediately did. Yes. LeVar Burton was the only star of that show. I mean... The, it, yeah, the rest were doing nothing. The rest, most of them were total unknowns. The only guy who would have been a small get was Patrick Stewart for science fiction fans who'd seen the 1984 movie Dune. So this show comes out in 87, right? Yeah. And like, Gurney Halleck is still not a huge draw, <laughs> okay? Unless you're a major Dune fan. I mean, yes, I personally love saying, God's what a monster. You know, like, that's awesome. <laughs> okay, although apparently Patrick Stewart hated that. And, really? You know, yes, he did. And, and mood is for cattle and love play, <laughs> you know. But uh, I got a little Scottish. But at any rate, the point is, the only get for that show was LeVar Burton, who was, keep in mind, Roots was the very first miniseries, and it was the biggest U.S. television show that there had ever been. There has been no higher ratings for ever any show up until that point. He was a huge asset to that show, and what did they do? They did the same bullshit that Brian Singer's crew did in the X-Men movies with Halle Berry, who's not only gorgeous and a terrific actor, but she'd freaking won an Academy Award by the time they got to the second movie. They had to shoot extra scenes for her because they realized, oh yeah, oh, she's got an Academy Award. We, she's going to walk if we don't do something else. It's like, uh, Storm, one of the most popular Marvel Comics characters, and you just like, so you bring in a big star. In fact, is she not the only get? In the, other than Patrick Stewart and Ian McKellen, who actually was only becoming a get because, yeah, because of, 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 of Lord of the X-Men. Rings. Yeah. And, and X-Men is before Lord of the that's Rings. That's right, that's right. Yeah, actually, that's true. So even McKellen is not a star to North Americans until Magneto. So the really, so you got Patrick Stewart and Halle Berry are the only gets of those, of those first two films. Uh, well, by the second film, Hugh Jackman is a get, okay? Yeah, but that's because he's... Because he was in the first film, <laughs> Yeah, you know? But, yeah. but so again, like, isn't this crazy? Like... So, and I'm saying that, yes, this is, this is also tinged by race. Because how do you bring on a superstar, you know, and then you just do and nothing with them? And shuffle them into the corner. Yes. Yeah. And Jordy, you know, oh, yeah, here's a great idea. Let, let's do this to an actor. Let's cover his eyes. Yeah. Because, you know, actors don't really need their eyes to relate to audiences. Yeah. You know. On MASH, they could do hundreds of hours of stuff in the OR where the only thing you saw was the characters, the actors' eyes. And those scenes are great. Yeah. They're great. They only need their eyes. Okay. Jordy. Okay. No, 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 no. Sorry. Finish that thought. I love it. So I'm saying that 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 Jordy is the freaking dumbest, stupidest character on a show full of dumb, stupid characters. <laughs> they had they had him fall in love with a freaking hologram. Hologram. There's a, and uh, his best friend is a toy. There is a a solid. <laughs> there, I've I've read that there is a there is a solid theory that the original intention was that Jordy. Was going to be some sort of technophile, wherein he he legitimately just could not form regular human relationships. That's why his best friend was a robot, yes. and he was he loved the ship, and he had a, a fling with a hologram, and just it was terrible with women, and didn't have many friends. Boy, they sure didn't. But they backed that. off of it because they were like, well, we can't do that. You know, again, television audiences aren't ready for this, so they backed off it. But there, I've heard, I've I've read something that was that was fairly convincing that, that that was the original thrust. So that would have been a, a, a completely legitimate tack to take, and it's a great thing to explore. And I agree that in the 1980s, probably a lot of people weren't ready for that. That is definitely a 90s and and beyond kind of thing that people. I mean, as an example of this, the right stuff. I don't know if you guys are old enough to remember the right stuff. I'm aware of the film, but okay. yeah, the film very briefly. It's about the American. Sp- in the, the space race, and 
this is a movie that depicts them as, uh, you know, flawed heroes, okay? But the movie tanked, and I never understood why, because I thought it was outstanding. And, you know, a lot of people now would love it, because it's, it's ironic, and it's fun, and it, and it still shows these guys being pretty freaking awesome. Cool. But according to Roger Ebert, in 1984, Americans were not ready to see a movie that depicted astronauts as anything, certainly not as philanderers or as guys who could fuck up a mission and, and, you know, Americans didn't want to see that. They wanted these guys to be perfect. And so, you know, what you're saying about, yeah, they couldn't take this story seriously. But look, and I, I'm going to say this, and I'm sure somebody's going to think that I'm, I'm making fun, but I'm not making fun. As a teacher, I taught a lot of kids who had Asperger's syndrome. Okay, they're on the autism spectrum disorder. And, you know, and because of that, I got to also recognize this in adults. And a lot of people who are technophiles, and I worked with various technophiles when I worked in the video game industry, you see, like, this guy, he's just like some of these students that I taught. He's got the same flat affect or display of emotion. He has, you know, poor interpersonal relationships. Um, <clears throat> he's very good at technical matters and has a difficult time with um, social matters. Mm -hmm. These are still our brothers and sisters. And this is one of the many ways to be a human. And so for a show to explore that and not make fun of the character would be a great opportunity. Yeah. And what they did was they said, let's make a, a handicapped character. He was handicapped because he was blind. And this is another thing that some people are mad at, that the, the handicapped people have to become sort of superhuman because he was better than us. I mean, Jordy could see better than all of us, right? Yeah. So it's like super wheelchair man, you know. <laughs> His so, wheelchair is faster than we can run. <laughs> that's right, exactly, yeah. that's right, you know. And so, so why not explore this other handicap, which certainly in the 1980s people didn't understand. Like, I mean, most of us had never heard in the 1980s of autism, no. even autism, yeah. and certainly not Asperger's syndrome. It would be a great thing to explore. And this is a case where a next generation, they were like with The Phantom Menace, they were making a show for children. The original Star Trek was a show for adults that had great appeal for kids. And Next Generation was a show that, like the sexiness of the original series, all gone, because yeah. it's a show for kids. Yeah. The scariness of the original show, which was a pretty intense show. A lot of those things were dis disturbing and also you know, sometimes scary. Star Trek Next Generation is a family show. Hmm. There is no concept, line of dialogue, or scene that you couldn't feel comfortable showing to your six-year-old. Between the two of you, Scott Scott has convinced me in the past that yes. I'm, I'm a big fan of Deep Space Nine, mm -hmm. where before I used to be a uh, TNG fan. Yes. You have just the fucking nail in the coffin. <laughs> I, I broke him of his TNG. Now, I'm going to ask you one more question related to this, this thing. Mission. Well done. <laughs> the biggest problem with popular literature today... <laughs> All I'm gonna all I'm gonna say by way of asking you the question yeah. is, these kids and their text messages. Yes, you know there are some people. There are people who lament. You know, and certainly when I was an English teacher for ten years, I, I did, uh, and even subsequently, because texting has become more common. I would see people submit formal writing, and it would include bits of text speak, like for instance, somebody using the letter U to, to represent the word. Y-O-U, for instance. Really? In essays, that was rare because you wouldn't tend to use direct address, obviously. Yeah, It's yeah. a formal essay. But you, know, you see these kinds of things happen. And it would drive me crazy, but I have to say that um, I the stuff drives me crazy for aesthetic reasons. Um, 
you know, any of us who have an even basic knowledge of linguistics understand that it is illogical to say that languages are degrading or that they're broken or that it's going downhill. It, these things make no scientific sense. If people can understand each other, they are using language correctly. Mm -hmm. If I suddenly say, well, those aren't words. You can't understand me. You are speaking in tongues. Yes, exactly. It was actually Klingon. Oh, uh, but it, uh, I was a little you test. Should, you should know. Yes, I'm not that kind of nerd. I'm sorry. <laughs> I guess not. But you know, so people, uh, you know, for the people who want to say that you know, English language is going downhill for whatever reasons. It's the immigrants. It's the kids. It's the it's the texting. Is what. Look. Uh, so if you really hold to that point of view, then I would guess that you would that Shakespeare could say that our 21st century standard English of broadcasting is terrible and it's degraded. And then Chaucer could say that Shakespeare's language is ruinous. To be and fair, Shakespeare was making up language as he went. That is that mostly is to tell penis jokes. Fair enough. I think we're all in favor of that. Got to ask you a quick question on that one. King Lear, you've read King Lear? Uh, I have actually not read King Lear. I've it's read one King of, Lear. It's one of the ones I have not read. Okay, so penis joke. I'm just, I'm just asking, okay? So um, Lear's right-hand man, basically his, his Obi-Wan Kenobi, okay, uh, is trying to go undercover so he can get hired on by Lear's enemies. Right. Okay? So he... Uh, oh, but before he does that, he's trying to get rehired on by Lear himself because he's been dismissed. This is uh, what, Kent? I'm this yes. Yeah, okay, so Kent... I think so. Kent... Gosh. You know, it's and been 15 years. Students would, you know, say they would legitimately. They never said this, but they should have asked the question. Wait a second, how come Lear doesn't recognize this this guy that he's known for 40 years? Like, you know, who's just shown up wearing some fake beard or whatever? Why doesn't he recognize? And I said, the kids never asked, but I would have said this. <laughs> I said because most of the world can't see very well. Because in any given room you go to today, three quarters of the people have contact lenses or glasses, and therefore, you know. Throughout most of human history, most people couldn't see very well. Well, and Lear was an old fucker, too. Exactly. And he was demented, and he was losing his mind. Yeah. So you could fool him. But at any rate, so he shows up, uh, Kent in disguise, and he's got an accent. Apparently, the script suggests he's speaking with a Scottish accent. And he says to Lear, here are the reasons you should hire me. And one of the reasons he gives is, and I eat no fish. So my question to you is, is this some kind of totally anachronistic joke about Catholics? to play the Protestant English crowd? Or is this a homophobic joke that he's saying that, Kent's saying, I do not fillet men, so, which is the only type of, well, yes, he could be an animal. Uh, I don't know. It's always so dodgy with Shakespeare. Like, it could be, it could be one of those things that was part of the zeitgeist. Yes. But and he also liked plays on words, so he could have been saying all three the, things at once. Yeah, yes, yeah. Yes, yes. I'm going to go with the, the religious aspect, okay. though. That's what I think. I'm going to go with the penis joke, because <laughs> that's how Shakespeare rolled. Indeed. Shakespeare rolls, by the way, are very good. <laughs> little, 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 you know, toasted oh, sesame Oh, no, time. Minister Faust. <laughs> oh. Ladies and gentlemen, that was Minister Faust on the Fast 15. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for being on the show. It's awesome to sit in with it you It was a pleasure. You guys are great. And where can we find your stuff one more time? Ministerfaust.com. Come, come, come. come. <laughs> You can add some reverb later. You've been listening to The Unknown Studio, Episode 73. Our guest, Minister Faust. Pre-production by Adam Rosenhart. Post-production by Scott C. Bourgeois. The Unknown Studio is a proud member of the League of Extraordinary Media. You can visit us on the web at theunknownstudio.ca. Thanks for listening.
I had no idea that the phrase black Irish meant somebody who wasn't liked. <laughs> it, it, <laughs> I gave the worst possible you answer did. and I feel terrible. Also, I was under the impression that data was well liked. Yeah, well, black Irish is mean and not red of hair, is it not? My friend Stan, who is Asian, calls himself black Irish um, because he is clearly not Irish. And because he was born on St. Patrick's Day. For me, the archetype of black Irish is Alec Baldwin. He's black Irish. Because he has dark hair, you're saying. And he's Irish. And he's Irish. Yeah. And he's a dick. (laughs) Interesting. See, from an Afrocentric perspective, merely defining an Irishman as black automatically raises his game. Really? So I never, it never occurred to me that black Irish would be an insult. I would have just thought, so they must be the best Irish. (laughs) <laughs> I'm down with that. Black is also another word for ultimate. Yes, exactly. Which we which will... Is, well, ultimate Nick Fury is black, and he's clearly <laughs> the best Nick Fury. <laughs> Not that there have been a range, really, of Nick Fury. <laughs> That's true. Uh, or Nick's Furies. Like, you know... Like Charlie's Angels. <laughs> I, I agree with Nick's Fury. Attorneys I think that that is grammatically correct. That would be a really great comic. Attorney's General. Yeah. yeah. Just like... It sounds like a super team, the Attorney's General. Yeah. What do they do? They sue your ass. So I'll introduce myself. I'm a novelist. My name is Minister Faust. Yes. I, uh, I try my best to embody Edmonton in my work. I write science fiction and fantasy, longtime community radio activist, among other things. But also... Welcome to the show. Thank you. From Thanks an, for having me. Yeah. From we, a, this is the most unprofessional we've ever been in front of a guest. He's uh, nodding, so it's, it's true. true. I... I, I was I was merely trying to be supportive of your statement. We, I, I can't actually. I don't have a significant enough sample size to. No, to trust me. Yeah, no. you right. you're being really kind to us. Well, I appreciate your honoring me with uh, your your devotion to your professionalism <laughs> tonight. Then that's that's wonderful. I think it's. I actually I'm going to blame it on the smell of the fresh varnish on the floor. You're high. Uh, it has affected my judgment that's, severely. That's and, probably um, true. Obviously, well, your judgment is always impaired. Yeah. So um, this is uh, embarrassing. We're just going to press onward.